0: Blog Talk Radio. TV tonight. TV tonight. TV tonight. TV tonight! TV tonight. We're gonna have our TV party tonight. All right. We're gonna have our TV party. All right. Tonight. We got. Everybody's going to hang out here tonight! All, All right. right! Still back out on the couch. All right! Tonight! We've got nothing better to do than
1: watch TV. That's right. We've got nothing better to do than hang out here and drink a couple of brews with you tonight. This is TV Party Tonight, and I am your host, the mandated reporter, or as I'm known these days, your friend, Wheezy Rattledge. And this is... Uh, we are going to be reviewing Polar House Season 2. It dropped late last year, I believe uh, December 9th, 2016, and it, we just didn't have time to get to it when it initially dropped, but it's a new year with a new schedule, and I am the schedule. That's my third nickname. Your mandated reporter, Wheezy and the schedule. I've, I've I'm acquiring nicknames, like Muhammad Ali. By the way, did I mention my name was Mark Radlich? Anywho, uh, myself and uh, the pugilist, Pat Mullen, who I will bring on shortly, uh, we are finally getting around to doing this, as we have the time now. So let's get to it. And so here's my guest host for tonight's TV party, a man who loves his totally 80s as much as he loves his fighting, Mr. Pat Mullen, how do you do, sir?
2: I do fantastic, Mark, and uh, just to, to let all of our faithful listeners know, Mark has uh, quite a bit on his plate right now, and he's really dealing with a lot of stuff outside of the podcasting realm, so it's it's really uh, taking a lot for him to be here tonight, so if you doubt his, his enthusiasm and his willingness to entertain and, and trust his uh, duties to make sure all shows go on scheduled for you guys, don't, because he's really putting a lot into this, and he deserves a lot of credit.
1: Well, I believe it was Jack Burton who said in Big Trouble in Little China, "If you're not busy living, if you're not busy living, you're busy dying." And I'm not ready to die yet, so <laughs> I might as well get busy living. And and, and, all, and I appreciate that. In all truthfulness, um, it, it, I have my good days. I have my bad days. Uh, today was a good day. We'll see how tomorrow goes. Uh, more importantly, let's see how tonight goes. So <laughs> I've got my earphones plugged into my cell phone. I am not internet dependent. For my sound, I'm excited. Let's get talking about Fuller House. Now, let me say right off the bat, uh, my wife watched this before I got a chance to, and she, I think, made it three or four episodes in before she finally threw her hands up and said, I can't take this horse shit anymore, which I thought was hilarious because this kind of show was more her speed than mine, and I actually remember initially we got into a bit of an argument about it because she had, when they initially announced the first season, she said, let's watch it together. And I said, no, I don't watch this kind of stupid crap. (laughs) And then Pat said he wanted to do a podcast on it. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'll watch it then. And she was like, oh, you'll watch it for a podcast, but you won't watch it for me. So season two rolls around and she was like, all right, I'm finally, she's finally going to sit down and watch this thing. And she said to me, she's like, yeah, I don't know what I got so excited about. This is horrible. Even I can't stomach it. And as I I said online, Pat, maybe it's the oxygen deprivation talking. But I actually found this season highly entertaining. I I was amused. I laughed out loud quite a few times. Uh, What was your your take? Did you like this season more than the last? Do you think it improved? Do you think it fell off?
2: You know, I think the first season – it was a really meticulous effort to try to not only win over viewers of full house, but try to bring in the new audience gradually without completely alienating them in favor of just wanting to rely on the full house fan base. Um, So this season, it went a little more in the direction of we've got the old folks established. We need to build a little bit more on the younger cast and try to, do something to create more of an audience and bring more in. And I think they did a pretty good job of it. I still wind up probably enjoying the first season a little bit more because I think this one was a little bit more ambitious on certain accounts. And we'll talk about that. Um, And so it it took some risks that maybe sometimes paid off and sometimes didn't, but we'll, we'll get there as we go. And I I enjoyed this season too. That's not a knock to say I enjoyed the first season more. (laughs)
1: excuse me that's fair you use the word ambition and I think that speaks to one of the first things we have to talk about and and we'll get into these things episode by episode but right off the bat we have to discuss uh, two things one where they left it last season uh, and where they pick up this season and two some of the changes they made cast wise Um, first thing they left it last season, where DJ had this DJ was being fought over by by Matt and what was the the boyfriend's name Steve. Steve, uh, and she told them both to she put them both on pause and said, "I need to figure out what it is that I want, and I need and I need to get to know myself a little bit better." And then Steve and, and Matt ended up becoming friends, and they sort of went off together, um, and and that's where it was left. And I think they did something else with uh, Kimmy and her ex, his estranged husband or whatever, where they were getting married and they didn't get married or what have you, Um, which bleeds right into where we find ourselves uh, at the onset of season two, where they elevated uh, Kimmy's estranged husband to a main cast member. Uh, Actually, his name is, uh, he plays a character named Fernando. I'm not saying his whole stupid name, <laughs>
0: uh,
1: but uh, <laughs> but he's played, um, the actor is Juan Pablo, uh, Capace or Pache, or whatever you like, and he's now elevated to a main cast member. So that's big because he was a bit player in the first season, but I feel like, and, and I haven't read anything about this, so I'm just taking a blind guess in the dark here, Pat, but I feel like maybe he was a favorite among people who watched the first season. And they were like, oh, we, we've got a hook here. He's kind of the Urkel of of this show, where they didn't mean for him to catch fire, but he did. And they figured, well, let's elevate him to a main cast member because, obviously, he, he brings an audience. Would you agree?
2: Yeah, uh, it's funny, too, because when we first reviewed the show, he did nothing but get on our nerves. And we really looked at him at a low point in uh, season one, And I I do think they did a better job kind of making him a little bit more integral to the stories as far, instead of being just kind of a one note joke and gave him a little more to build on. And I found him less grating, but I do think it's one of those things where it's funny where you and I tend to, not always have similar tastes when it comes to these things, but that was our one, if nothing else, universal point that we could agree on is that we hated Fernando and he was kind of the breakout of season one and they needed to expand his role in season two. Yeah,
1: he. I definitely found him less grating. They humanized him a bit more. They made him less of a punchline and more of a character, so he was less irritating. Um, speaking of... New characters. The other new character that they introduced, and there, there's a handful of recurring characters that came back. Not all of them need uh, long discussion, but this one does. I don't know where they got this clone of Ashton Kusher from that they made Lift Wave
0: look beefy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they're calling him, the, the name they're giving him is Adam Hagenbrush, as Jimmy Gibbler, but he's a hunky hunky Ashton Kusher clone. Don't tell me no different. I'm telling you, that that guy is Ashton Kutcher with muscle. That, there's no way he's a real human being. My goodness.
2: No, I saw that guy, and, you know, the first time I'm watching the show, I look at it, and I'm like, did Ashton Kutcher, you know, get on the gas? Like he, <laughs> Because he is a dead ringer for, you know, that 70s show, later years, Ashton Kutcher when he stopped really kind of feathering his hair and stuff and, but he was really just kind of bulky and very muscular and wore a shirt that was about two sizes too small to show it off. And I was like, Holy cow, who is this guy? I've never seen him in anything else. Uh, And I I'm 99% convinced that they, they signed him just because of the resemblance with the added BC factor that they'll probably hook in a large female audience with.
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm not gay, but hubba hubba. Um, And as far as his acting career, there's not even another He doesn't even light up with a link in Wikipedia. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for Fuller House and he, his name is just dead print. So yeah, they, they just, I'm sure this was an open casting call and that was how that went. He just walked on. They were like, you don't need, can you read English? It doesn't matter. (laughs) You look like this very hot famous actor who married Demi Moore or was dating her or whatever, and you look perfect for our female audience. Perfect. Um, and I have to say, when they first brought him on as uh, Jimmy gibbler it was, um, and, and we'll talk about the season opener in, in just a minute, but I, I just, I want to touch on this first. I thought we had another Fernando situation on our hands. I thought, oh no, here's another um, dumb male you know Joey from Friends, kind of a situation, <laughs> and then <laughs> a
2: male, a male bimbo.
1: Yeah, that's all we're going to. A bimbo. Right, and and it's going to be every episode. It's going to be make fun of the dumb beefy guy. And it, it took a few episodes, but the one where they finally go on the date, and he brings her into the trailer, and it turns out he's a talented photographer. That's why he lives. You know, he's not a millennial slacker. <laughs> he's, like, he's living in the trailer because he travels and, you know, he has to go overseas. And, yeah, he's, he's kind of a dummy, but he's a talented dummy. And there were reasons why he was in the situation that he was in that made sense. And he wasn't always too stupid. You know, it wasn't a situation like, a, you know, like I said, where he, every joke is, look how dumb he. So I actually liked the Jimmy Gibbler character and I thought him and Jody Sweetin as a Stephanie Tanner actually had very good chemistry on screen and I enjoyed as the season progressed, I enjoyed their interactions. Um, if you want to touch on Jimmy Gibbler and then we'll jump into the season opener. Go ahead.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, the, the initial reaction of some people were, were kind of mixed because The storyline was initially Stephanie needed time to find herself and not immediately jump into anything because of all the other relationships and such that she was in last season and, uh, you know, dating Hunter Pence and thinking Harry Takayama of the old character was back and all that stuff. And so they were wanting to see more of a pursuit, but then you're just basically rehashing season one with the Fernando Kimmy hijinks. And I think that would have been a huge misstep. I think having two people, who have that kind of chemistry basically just organically connect, which is, I think they did a good job within the show was the right call to make. And there's no, you know, it's not that they're going to get married at this point or anything like that. So it's not like they've tied that up completely. It was a good storyline for season two to give this guy some introduction and to build kind of a fan base. And I I enjoyed them. There were poignant moments between them and, not all comic relief ones either. When he said to Stephanie, you know, I, I envisioned myself having kids with you and she has to revisit the trauma of not being able to conceive. That was really good. And he, whoever he was, if he's not a guy with any kind of prior acting experience, he pulled off the role remarkably well.
1: Yeah. I had no, I really had no complaints with any of the um, non main characters in this. And, and, and I think overall it was a very strong season. Uh, let, let me go ahead and, and get right into the season opener here because, like I said, it um, there's been a break and it picks up with uh, with, with the thread of the uh, story where DJ has to pick between Matt and Steve, uh, but of course there's a twist. The other thing is you know the elevation of Fernando to main uh, main house main character. Um, And then another season-long story was, you know, Max and his project. So we'll talk about all three of those things. Right off the bat, um, I want to say this. I think the measure of a a show like this and how good or bad it is is how many times I have to fast-forward through the non-organic, awkward, comedic situations. (laughs) And I only had to do that two or three times the entire season, which is pretty good for me.
0: Because
1: there are certain shows I watch, and New Girl. I almost have to fast forward, you know, the uh, a portion of that show every single episode because the situations get become too ridiculous. Like, no, I can't handle this. People don't act this way. Um, I didn't, like I said, I didn't have to do that too many times this season for Fuller House, but I did have to do it in the first episode, and the first episode really mimics the very first episode of Fuller House with the transition of the old cast to the new cast, where everything felt very rushed. Um, it felt forced. This was a rough episode to start off with. And I can see where it might give someone pause if, they, if they're coming into a cold, like, oh my God, it's the whole thing like this. <laughs> um, and it does get better. Things do smooth out, as it did with the first season, Things were slowed down. You know, the stories were handled with, with care and time. But it's like they, get, they have the – I'm wondering if they'll do this with season three as well, where they just feel like they have so much to do that it, it just feels all smushed together and rushed. And then they created this situation with DJ uh, Jimmy Gibbler and, and, and Steve and Matt and the, and the girlfriends that just felt ridiculous, and I couldn't watch it. It was unbearable. <clears throat> uh, so we'll, we'll start off with that part of this first. Uh, DJ's going to finally reveal who uh, she, she's decided that she's going to be with, which you won't then find out to the end of this season. But the curveball that gets thrown to her is you have Matt, who is dating a young chippy, who's a big exercise freak and full of energy and doing cartwheels in the house and whatnot. And you have Steve, who is dating CJ, not DJ. Remember that, because that's an ongoing gag throughout this season. And basically, CJ is DJ, a blonde version of DJ. who I don't know how she puts up with Steve. (laughs) Because clearly, Steve is still in love with DJ. And even she seems to acknowledge it. But go ahead. Let me give my voice a rest here. The introduction of the girlfriends. And, uh... That whole swerve. What do
2: you think of that? Had to be done. You 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 know, the central conflict of the the second half of season one was DJ having to make her decision between Steve and Matt. And, it, you know, it got pretty heated. If you looked at the fans actually followed the show on Twitter and everything, hashtag Team Steve Fuller House, hashtag Team Matt Fuller House, uh, to the point where they had Kimmy, the best friend, and Stephanie, the sister, arguing over which guy was better. And, you know, that was how the first season ended. And you're thinking, okay, second season's going to open with one of them being picked, and how's that going to translate? But instead they were smart enough to avoid it where they had Steve and Matt each kind of say, well, she's not dating either of us. Why are we going to sit around with our thumbs up our butt? We're not getting any younger, especially Steve. So they got girlfriends of their own. What a shock. And the the one, you know, clearly kind of the polar opposite of DJ. One, very clearly a... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Facsimile, almost of DJ, <laughs> and it, it, and not only did they do good in setting that up, but the conflicts between DJ and the girls, without being actual conflicts, was enough to play out over more than one episode, which is a very uh, difficult task to attain, but they did it.
1: Um, yeah, I, I I thought it was funny. That they set Steve up with CJ. And I actually like the way that that plays out towards the end of the season, which, you know, we'll get there eventually. I was curious to see how the thing with Matt and his girlfriend was going to play out. And, and you know, obviously, you know, if you've seen the whole season, you know that it doesn't. Um, but I thought that was a good way to handle it at first. Because I, hadn't, I had a sneaking suspicion it wasn't going to last. The other thing that we, we got to talk about is Fernando. And I think, I think his introduction as a main cast member, on the one hand, was handled fine. On the other, it just, my God, could it have been any more forced? I mean, it, it, it didn't feel natural at all. I didn't even find it funny. You know, I, I actually was, I emphasized with the Max character, who, well, by the way, has gotten better as an actor. I don't, I don't know what didn't go to acting school over the summer. You know, in between seasons, or the director maybe took some notes from watching it and you know, went back to him and said, okay, I, we've got to work with this kid and tone him the to fuck down. But he, uh, he, he's actually uh, better now than he was last season, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, and, he, and his reaction to Fernando, I thought was really amusing. And I was right there with him. I was like, yeah, kid, I don't want him in the house either. But in the house he is. I, I mean, this house uh, this house is like a magic bag of holdings from Dungeons & Dragons. It just seems to go on forever and can hold an infinite amount of people. I don't know where they put all of them. Especially later in the season when like, everyone comes to visit and they're doing I, I was going to we'll, say,
2: we'll, yeah, we'll get to Thanksgiving later on. Oh, Jesus Christ.
1: But uh, I was not amused by, by Fernando's antics in the first episode. Because I thought half of the problem with him was that he was a race car driver. And he was never home. Um, and then he never, and then they introduced him as a main character and he never seemed to leave or do anything. So that was a little, that, that, that irritated me.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all.
1: Um, real quick, your thoughts on Max, do you think, uh, do you think he got any better uh, the second season?
2: Yeah, he he was one of the people that really annoyed us toward the end of the first season. And It's almost like you feel bad picking on a kid, but everything with him toward that middle point of the season onward was, I have to yell and be extreme, and I have to make sure everything I'm doing is where I'm in view of the camera with my arms in the air, extended like I'm Donald Trump, and just screaming it out to the heavens.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah. This
2: season was more him getting to play a different role, which is smart-alecky middle child, which I think plays better to a general audience. Jody Sweeten, when she had the same kind of adversarial relationship like that with Kimmy, ended up having a much greater uh, reaction from people on the show in a positive way. Uh, I can think of Jonathan Taylor Thomas on home improvement as smart-alecky middle child, and it played really well. And I think that's better here. And I think, for all the stuff we could say about Fernando, it gave Elias Harder a better platform to do something different with himself and worked out much better for him.
1: Yeah. He got the move beyond the, I'm cute and screaming it into the camera. You know, he had a relationship to deal with. He had sort of a nemesis and there was a different angle to him. Um, and, and, and overall it was much more entertaining so here's what I got frustrated with. So they bring it, so you have one of the major threads of this season was uh, Jodie Sweet and Stephanie, Stephanie's character, you know, she's settled into the house. She, she plays her part in, in raising the kids. But um, she's come to this realization that there's still time for her to pursue things in her own life. She doesn't just have to be, uh, you know, the stay-at-home aunt. As, as it is, she's going to focus on her music. It's something that she was passionate about. It was what she was doing prior to coming in and helping out her sister in the wake of the uh, husband's death. So she's in the backyard, and she's messing with some chords, with an you know, acoustic guitar. And in walks Hunky Hunky Jimmy Gibbler. And they have this magic moment, <laughs> this unreal magic moment, which I'm fine with, Honestly for the kind of show that we're talking about here that was about the and most the kind of, thing the kind of
2: looks these people have <laughs> come on I, I, okay yeah. let's put it the opposite way so we don't sound, so we don't sound like we're into Jimmy Gibbler if uh, we okay. were playing the car and Jody Sweeten walked in and had that uh, would you say no absolutely not no absolutely,
1: yeah, absolutely. If, if i'm in the backyard you know fiddling on a fiddle and she walks in and gives me a come hither look and looked into my eyes, oh, we're kissing. That's all there is to it. I absolutely understand. So, like I said, it was believable. It was the believable, most believable thing in the entire episode. Um, where I, what, what drove me nuts and where I finally lost my patience was the, the third act where Kimmy says, Hey, DJ, I, I feel bad that you don't have a boyfriend at your own barbecue and the other two potential boyfriends now have girlfriends. Why don't you pretend to date Jimmy and they don't share this plan with Stephanie? And so I, I, you'll have to tell me what happened because it's about that time that I went <laughs>
0: this
1: this is horrifying. I can't I can't handle it anymore. It's too stupid. So I am gonna let you sum up what happened here because I literally I
0: just hated
1: it so much. Flames on the side of my face and I dispatched over to the end of the episode. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, uh, basically, DJ comes out and says, oh, you know, I'm not really into Jimmy, and it's not working. And uh, everyone, especially Matt, Steve, and Stephanie, are kind of not even aware of what's really going on. And Jimmy then gets to say, well, that's really good, because I'm actually into Stephanie. And there's a little requisite of, you know, like the rest of the background characters kind of sitting back and acting like an audience because this is getting good which, eh, chuckle here, but it really didn't work very well. And I, I, myself, if I wasn't so committed to watching the whole thing, would have fast-forwarded through it.
1: <laughs> it it's hard to watch that. I would say it was one of the hardest things to get through, and thankfully not a precursor of what was to come, but more of an operation for how the, re- how the rest of the season was. Because in all honesty, but most of the rest of the season was fine. There wasn't anything really about it that I was like, "Oh my god, this is retarded." Um, it was actually enjoyable, and I thought the characters were relatively uh, within the realm of believability, especially for a for this type of situational comedy. But that's where we that's where we end that episode, and yeah, it was a it was a bit of a slog to get through, um, a, a bit too fast, a, a bit too they they were tackling a bit too much at one time. But as things as the season progressed, it slowed down finally, and they were able to handle. Uh, the, you know, they were able to juggle the threads a bit more, uh, a bit better. One of the things that's a holdover from last season is Jackson being into Lola, and you know Jackson's. Well, I wouldn't call him a shipless layabout. He he's not a kid with a particular talent for anything. He's just an average kid, which is fine. Not not every kid you know, finds himself in middle school or elementary school. You know, sometimes we don't find ourselves well into adulthood. So not picking on the characterization of Jackson. But uh, the second episode picks up the thread where he's still trying to impress Lola, so he's going to join the football team. Um, There's a game night where Matt and Steve bring their girlfriends. And, oh, and and this is the episode where uh, Alan's sick. Who may or may not yes. have been final performance, <laughs> I, this is where I laughed out loud. This had to be the first episode where I was literally, la- you know, I'm sick and in bed, but I'm laughing my ass off because Alan Fitch is hilarious on this. As Mike he here. <laughs> yes. Every, uh, he, he begins every sentence with, Mike here. It's <laughs>
2: Oh my god, how much did you love Alan So oh, cool. Um and for those that don't know, um, Alan Tick, of course, star of Growing Pains and composer of a lot of music, but the neat tie-in is that as the star of Growing Pains, he played the father of DJ's real life brother Kirk Cameron on that show for seven years, on A B C no less. Um so it was a nice little cute tie-in to that. And to see a familiar face who – let's face it, the majority of the Full House audience was also a pretty good semblance of the Growing Pains audience. I know I was. So it was really cool to see that tied in. And to see him playing the part of <laughs> – this is, again, the disconnect between Steve's uh, – or, excuse me, uh, Matt's girlfriend and DJ. Uh, Matt's girlfriend is very young, very into fitness and everything. And the gag is, you know, she – brings DJ a date, and DJ goes, oh, is this your father? And she goes, no, no, of course not. And DJ breathes a sigh of leaves, and she says, it's my grandfather.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, this episode was mostly to, to set up how Stephanie and Jimmy actually have uh, a connection. Like, they're doing, you know, in, in the midst of playing the game, he's able to answer her questions without her really even giving them, which is a funny gag. But, you know, it was whatever. But the whole point of it... I
2: actually was, really liked it.
1: Yeah, it was it an was v- elaborate setup to say, hey, Jimmy and Stephanie really do belong together. And they did it early enough in the season that there was other stuff they could do with them.
2: I don't necessarily think it was well-written. I think it was really well-performed.
1: Yeah. No, I, 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 I think it was literally... They gave them a bit of hash to work with and they made something out of it. Um, that was that was very amusing to watch. I, actually, I really thought the whole episode was funny. Um, the, the the interactions during the whole game night were were very amusing to me and very funny. Uh, all the Alan Fix stuff was hilarious. I laughed every time he said Mike here, you know, and I put that on Facebook. Uh, to which you responded, Mike here. Um, <laughs> Any, anything about the Lola Jackson thing there? Because, I mean, that was a, it was a plot thread. It was fine. I don't... You know, I, I the only reason why even remember it is because I'm reading it off of a media page, to be honest with you.
2: Uh, until, you know, until Tommy gets older, they're going to have a little bit more for Jackson to do, but they have to come up with stuff that seems relatable, again, to a lot of kids, and uh, I wasn't the type of kid who didn't necessarily find my niche, but I had some friends who didn't, and we're always looking for something, and I can see, understand the angle they're painting with that as far as, you know, the football team stuff and him being accident-prone and clumsy and having the protective mom. And it, it, it's not necessarily the funniest gag, but I don't think it's meant to be. I think that's meant to keep kids interested And in when they're watching it with mom and dad who grew up on Full House and saying, wait, I understand that because that's me. Because let's face it, with every kid who tries out for a high school football team, maybe one of them actually has real talent makes it into something more. And most of the kids who try out, don't make it. So it's, it's a relatable scenario. and I don't think it's poorly executed. I just think sometimes they try to stretch it a little bit much to keep, the, again, the involvement of the younger characters to play to the younger audience.
1: Uh, I wasn't allowed to play football. You know, I, I would play outside with my friends and I was bigger than most kids my age. And I was very tough. Um, you know, I, I I would find my I would find my place going to mosh pits and you know with you know, heavy metal concerts and whatnot very early on. I started going to concerts when I was in I think tenth grade by myself with uh, with an older group of guys. And I had been you know and I had been doing mosh pits you know for a very long time, so I wasn't afraid to take a hit. And I wrestled in, in junior high and all of that, but um, my father drew the line at, at playing football because really he thought it would be paralyzed. So. From that aspect, I could relate to uh, i could relate to DJ, you know, playing the protective mother of, you know, saying, something similar to what my father said? Like, no, this is not, it's not worth getting hurt. Um, it's, it, I, I don't know if he may or may not have thought I, I might have been talented. Um, she flat out says, I don't think you have a talent for this. You're accident prone. And the likelihood of you getting hurt is high and it's not worth it especially if you're only doing this to impress a girl and your heart's not really in it. So I, I agree with you in that sense. Um, if, you, if you want to give a last word, that's fine, but I want to move on to episode three. Because, and, I, and I didn't even think about this until the whole season had ended, but they didn't do a whole lot with Jackson's friend Popco, the most ridiculous name, uh, in the first season. But he actually gets a fair amount of recurring play in this season. And uh, I I thought he was, I thought his little arc that they gave him was at least fairly interesting. Um, As far as, you know, the sitcom friend role, uh, it's usually a very annoying character. I actually found him of that genre of character to be less grating than normal, especially towards the end where he seems to have learned a lesson or so. But uh, he starts off here with essentially manipulating Ramona into kissing him and then playing her for a fool and sending her heart on a roller coaster ride, which uh, plays out over the season. It wasn't just a one and done thing, which I really liked about the writing of this season. So uh, Opco and Ramona <coughs> Ramona's not so epic first kiss Opco and Ramona, what do you think?:
2: uh, As far as the, the what I would brand the Eddie Haskell role of the show, uh, to clarify, Eddie Haskell was the ne'er-do-well best friend of the oldest brother on Leave It to Beaver, really the first character of this kind. So that's why I call it the Eddie Haskell role uh, for those who didn't grow up in a house with a black-and-white TV and, and sat in front of it for hours at a time as I did. Um, <laughs> but the the Popco-Ramona art is definitely something to do. I think for us, one of the surprises and bright spots of last year was Ramona and her ability to do a lot when given a little bit. And she impressed us. And this is in a way to kind of not only play that in a more, probably about as dramatic a role as you'll see on a show like this, but a very, very common thing that happens with teenage girls and teenage boys. Um, I can say that that scenario played out in my life a time or two. And Popko is definitely the... uh, butthole, not nice guy that a lot of girls seem to dig at most ages of their life. So it's well thought out on that end. And the interplay, I think, when exactly is what you would see in real life would for the most part.
1: I thought it was very believable. The other uh, secondary plot of this is um, DJ and Stephanie crash her wedding when she picks up a gay guy. <laughs> I actually thought those sequences were very funny. Stephanie with the corned beef. Oh, if I didn't love you before <laughs> this this episode, I'd certainly love you now as a character. I thought that was great. <laughs> Till some of the mustard. I mean, there, there's a lot of one-liners and gags in this in this show that, I don't know, they strike me as funny. And like I said, the, the setup there is just trying to get D, uh, DG to be less of a stick in the mud and get her to go out and live life. You know, if you're not busy living, you're busy dying as I said earlier. Um, Did we get a joke? So, So, uh, I feel like I need to repeat it, (laughs) the whole other story there. But, um, you know, they made a point of uh, they wanted to get, they didn't want her to just kind of keep her down until they decided to readdress the boyfriend thing. It's like, no, let's give her some stuff to do. Let's, let let, let let you know, let's let DJ let her hair down every once in a while because we don't want her to be too bob saggedy <laughs> through uh through the entire season. And so I thought it was fun. You know, letting the characters step out of character every once in a while and do something really fun makes the show itself a little bit richer in my opinion. And I thought the crashing of the Irish wedding was hilarious.
2: A little a little hackney because you know, somebody like me or you will get the jokes of who Sinead O'Connor and Carol O'Connor are. I feel like the majority of the audience may get the Sinead joke, but will not understand the Carol O'Connor joke. As uh, Carol <laughs> O'Connor is very fl- famous for playing Archie Bunker, among other iconic roles, but that's the one. Uh, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google a TV show called All in the Family. Um <laughs> Uh but, you know so to me and you that's funny, but that plays to a very niche audience, but the overall gag of it of them step dancing and not knowing the words to Danny boy and and bringing a gift to the wedding they were <laughs> crashing uh that was all really good uh and and I you have to have those episodes where it can get goofy but reasonably goofy. It reminded right. me of their their girls' night out in season one when they were doing the dance contest
1: right. Yeah, I think there's, there's limitations. I actually think later on when they go to the high school reunion, they they overstep that line quite a bit. But I thought this, you know, keeping it light, making some fun references and some jokes, and, and keeping to some of the themes, it's fine. Uh, episode four is the Halloween episode. This got to me, and I, it, it ended well. This was one of those where, I was I was thinking about fast forwarding it at one point because it was getting ridiculous. And, and basically, the premise here is um, DJ throws a terrible Halloween party to try to impress Max's friends, but of course she's a goody-goody mom, and she you know and she doesn't understand that you know uh, ten is the new twenty. <laughs> so she uh, so she's got this one kid there. And, it's a reoccurring character, especially when they bring the father in. It's like highly competitive, and you know, it's one of those where everything they do is, you know, ridiculously good, and it's compared to everybody else. Um, and so this kid, <laughs> this kid is just is just ripping this party to shreds. And uh, it actually ends with Stephanie and Jimmy, who are working as zombies in a haunted house, bringing all the haunted house characters back and scaring the shit out of the kids. Yeah. Okay. It's fine. Um, I didn't love it, but it, it, I, I didn't love the episode, but I thought the ending was fine. As far as like I, the subplot. I, go I was going to
2: say there's one particular part of this episode I really loved and uh, I was shocked by it because it involved Fernando.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: Go ahead.
2: Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I grew up on I Love Lucy reruns. I don't think it's uncommon that anybody listening has seen at least one I Love Lucy rerun. So the costumes as a whole were fun when they started. To actually go full blast into the Lucy-Ricky hijinks where uh, Fernando says he's going to perform for the kids as Ricky and perform his signature song, Babalu, with a a conga was fantastic. Uh, And Kimmy, again, Andrea Barber was the highlight of last season for me. Um, and she gets to play that part again and do a little homage to Lucille Ball. And between her trying to sneak into the performance, the facial expressions, everything about what she did was magic, and Fernando did not weigh her down at all. He held up his end for once and was actually funny, and their little end song together in black and white was really engaging.
1: Okay. I didn't... From a craft point of view, I don't disagree. And, you know, we haven't talked a lot about Andrea Barber uh, yet in this season, but you're absolutely right. She continues to be a real pip. She continues, the actress herself continues to bring a lot to that character and make her interesting. She lights up as a performer. Um, I, I did find the, the Lucy and Ricky bit to be amusing and entertaining. But overall, I, was, I, I didn't take to it quite, uh, quite like you did, to be honest. I just thought, like, okay, I get it, and they're doing a great job, but I thought it was a gag that in and of itself was fine, but, the rest of the, but it, it just felt like the rest of the episode wasn't good enough to where I, I could look at that and go,
0: eh,
1: you know, like, oh, it's all great. You know, It was more like, this episode is blah, and that's kind of funny, and I just want to go on to the next episode.
2: I don't disagree, because that was, that was mainly the one part of the show, the, or the episode, I should say, that stuck out to me in a very positive way, other than um, uh, Max's friend Taylor, like, subtly hitting on DJ. <laughs> All
1: right, so we get to episode five, which is basically a long setup to uh, finally moving on with the DJ and the revolving boyfriend storyline. Spoiler alert, she goes with Team Max. Uh, Basically, the dog swallows a corn cob. And um, we should point out at this point that uh, in the first episode, Max has his project that he has to do. He has to do something having to do with making the world a better place. So he decides he's going to create a sustainable garden. Um, And Fernando, I think, buys some chickens, which they name after characters from the original season. I think it's Joey, Jesse. Um... Danny, Danny and, and
2: Becky.
1: Rebecca. Yeah, chicken Becky. <laughs> um, actually, the gags with the chickens, I find amusing now that I'm thinking about it. But uh, so we've got chicken, he's growing vegetables, um, and this is something that, like, him and Fernando kind of bond over. But at one point, not knowing better, um, go- going back to this episode, he gives him a, an ear of corn, dog swallows the corn, Dog the dog now needs surgery, um, Matt ends up helping D.J., do surgery on the dog and in doing so they realize they want to be together and Matt ends up breaking up with Crystal and starts dating DJ. Um, Perfect. It was a perfect setup, perfect execution. Yay. Um, I, I don't remember where we landed last season, but I, I remember being team Matt. So I was happy that this is where this is the direction they went in. I actually think as a couple an on screen couple, they look good together. So uh, I, was, I was happy for it. I thought this was an excellent episode. The other side of the episode, the other plot thread, was uh, Ramona doing an audition for a dance coach. And, you know, they bring in a lot of very flamboyant characters <laughs> on this show. And the dance coach was certainly there. And I tell you, this is then one of those situations where, thankfully, there was some restraint on either the director's side or the actor side, or both.
2: Either way. Well, he's not he's good. he's not an actor. That is Bruno Tonioli from Dancing with the Stars.
1: Oh, is it? Okay, I know. I have no idea who he was. I don't watch Dancing with the Stars.
2: Go ahead. Yeah, that's that's Bruno Tonioli from Dancing with the Stars, who's known to be very bombastic with his explanations of his scores. And he's also the very critical judge who tends to never give out tens, which they allude to with the joke he he makes towards the end of the episode. Um, So I was actually impressed with what he was able to do, because, yes, there's a little bit of actual Bruno in there but whether it was good writing to structure his guest appearance around what they believe him to be capable of, or whether he just went through with what he did good on Bruno. Cause I was surprised. And again, you know, not, not really surprised to see at least one dancing with the stars uh, feature there because we've had Candace Cameron do it. And then uh, two seasons ago, we had Jody Sweeten do it. So.
1: I, uh, I enjoyed that subplot with Ramona and the dance coach. Um, Whatever the approach was, okay, I I get that that's that's how he is, and and that's fine and everything. That's his TV persona. Um, Thankfully, then, they didn't play too much of that up. I thought there was enough restraint involved that it was a watchable character. Um, I was happy that they wrote it where Ramona actually succeeded. I was also happy they wrote it where this was one of those situations where they could have chose to make it really silly and have – uh, the Kimmy and Ramon character ruined things for her in a ridiculous way that people don't actually act like, but they didn't go in that direction. Thankfully, there was again restraint shown in the writing, and they actually, you know, and, and they allude to them being someone embarrassing for her and, and overwhelming for her. And then when she needs them, Ramon, who we all hate, <laughs> rises to the occasion and really be- shows. These moments where he can be a good, thoughtful father, you know, he's doing what he he's doing. He has a talent, obviously, for dancing, and he's able to do that to help his daughter. And there was some, you know, and in a father daughter way, not in, obviously not in a romantic way. There was some on stream chemistry between those two characters, and I I really enjoyed that subplot.
2: Yeah, he. He doesn't play a lot of roles well, but at least in the role of father, which maybe he is a father in real life, and that's where he does get it from. I, I don't know. I don't know uh, Juan Pablo's background all that much. But um, the the point of him being a really supportive, uh, wanting to everything to be the best for Ramona's father, is not something that was lost on me in the first season, particularly when she had her, uh, her birthday party. Uh, and, and going into this season, not only with, this episode, but in the episode we talked about where she has her first kiss and first, you know, what she thinks is a date with Popko and his attitude towards Popko. It's one role he can play consistently pretty competently.
1: Yeah. Um, And again, they, later on they do some stuff with Kim, with Kimmy that annoyed me, namely the Nutcracker that where they just they they just write her in a way where she periodically loses her mind. (laughs) But Um, and, and it gets to be a little much for me, but here they showed some restraint, and it worked. It all worked very, very well. So, speaking of not showing restraint, holy shit! Episode six,
0: Fuller <laughs> and,
1: and the Magic House of Holding, with the seventy-two people in it that they suddenly had room for. You, you, you had. You know, when I mentioned it earlier, you were like, "Oh God, we ought to talk about this." Are are you like the house seems full with just the main cast? <laughs> what the hell man
2: this this was insane they always you know on on the original show there were always times where you had a lot of people staying in the house at once never this much at one point in time in the house you had a residency taken up by uh, Danny the three girls Jesse, Rebecca and their two boys and Joey uh, and that's that accounts for eight people not a tremendous amount for a three-story house, but now you're factoring in, you know, everybody except for Michelle of the original cast, Kimmy, Fernando, Ramona, um, the three boys, Joey, his wife, and their, uh, I, I believe it was four children. Yeah. Uh, I could be wrong. I think it was four. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah. Matt being invited over for the dinner Steve and CJ being invited over for the dinner. It was an insane amount of people in one place at one time trying to arrange it. And then on top of that, you have, uh, you have poor Jesse being kicked out of the bedroom by Becky because they disagree over child adoption, which we'll get to, too.
1: Yeah, it, that was overwhelming to watch. I could imagine directing all those actors. Um, I, I, I think we need to address something right off the bat. Joey and his wife and those four horrible children because it was one of those situations where I'm watching this and I'm like, first of all, when did this happen? I don't remember him having I, I barely remember his origin where I guess he had, had a wife and they, they separated or whatever and that's how he ended up um, as, you know, as being a friend to Danny moving into the house No, 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 girl. no. He, oh, that's not he, happened. he just okay.
2: happened to be he just happened to be Danny's best friend, and when Danny became a widower, he asked not only jo- Jesse for help, but he asked Joey if he would help and told him he could move in and so Joey moves in because he doesn't have to pay rent and doesn't have a real job at the time okay
1: when did this happen because they alluded to her being his second wife that i what the, what have I missed
2: I don't remember the allusion to being a second wife honestly uh from the first season, but in the first season, you know actors they do little things and one of the things I noticed on him during the first season was he wore a wedding band through each episode he was in. And it's pretty noticeable because the black wedding band, it's, you know, onyx or whatever you want to call it. It wasn't your standard, you know, gold wedding band that could easily blend in and not be picked up. Um, and I, I know they allude to him living in Vegas and whatever, but they never really went full bore on how he met his wife, where they met his wife, that he had children in the first place. um, And, and, you know, it kind of raises some questions about last season when he was randomly able to fly in from Vegas to babysit when they had girls night out. Uh, You know, kind of, oh, well, what did you do? Did you leave your whole family behind? That sort of deal. (laughs) Um, Right. Yeah. And I, I know it was the needed gag for this. I just wish there was some background to it because we don't know anything about the children, for example, being horrible until they start doing extremely horrible things right off the bat.
1: Yeah, I feel like the writing of this was very lazy. Where it was like we want a situation where there's these horrible the gag is the kids are ho- these these kids are, are horrible, but there's nothing anyone can do about it. And I'm like, uh, okay, it, but it just came out of nowhere and I you're telling me that nobody in this house recognizes how bad these kids are or this I mean I know they sent Timmy to sort of deal with Him, which which goes, of course, awry because she's an idiot too. But I just the whole thing seemed very hackneyed to me, and I thought I I almost found it just too distractingly stupid. (laughs) This episode, but
2: and, and and little stuff about it too, like how did you know two boys who look to be about well, we'll generously call them you know eight and nine years old. How were they able to tie up Jackson? I know he's an accident-prone kid, but he's twice their size. Just wring his neck.
1: I, yeah, I kept waiting. I was like, how did you not punch either of those two kids? I, you know, you're telling me, you, you know, these, these two little kids, you just laid down and let these two kids tie you up? I mean, that, that, got, that got too stupid. You know, and Ramona, who's kind of a badass in her own right, just let the two girls go through her stuff and look like Jerome from Gotham. Um, I know you don't watch the show, but... <laughs> I mean, it was just like, no, it, I, maybe it's just me and you, you know, who would never let something like that happen even when we were that age. But it just looked too stupid to me. And I felt like that man, and... as a parent, as, as a parent and as somebody who works in the mental health profession, I'm watching this going, how, if you're Joey, how do you let this happen? And
2: then well, them you know, nothing to do. The, and there's the point I wanted to go to. Joey's always been an idiot of a character, like really pronounced in the later years of full, a full house too, where uh, there's one particular instance where they're talking about how uh, it's a problem that Becky can't sing because they sing a harmony to Nikki and Alex every night. And, Jesse really thinks it's a huge problem and I, I'll never forget this line because so it just makes me so angry. <laughs> it, uh, Joey goes, that's not a big problem. A big problem would be like if your butt fell off. <laughs> and I feel like that was the height of his character's stupidity.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And like there was a point in time where Jesse just really didn't tolerate it and would smack him all the time. But even he couldn't smack him to that. He, his reaction was probably like a really natural John Stamos reaction. He just goes what? And then he gives a really, he gives a really stupid explanation of how you'd be totally out of the mooning business. And so, you know, I could, yeah, I, I could maybe buy that. He's enough of an idiot to not see this. And then you really have to stretch your, your, your TV logic here to think, well, there's a woman who married this man and procreated with him multiple times. She can't be all that bright. Right. So maybe part that's your other, explanation?
1: Or the other side of it is those are his stepchildren, which, okay, fine. But either way, why even I – mean, as a writer on this show, why even have the mother character there if you're not going to give her anything to do?
2: And, I mean, and here's what yeah. I'm getting to, because the actress who plays Ginger Gladstone, Laura Bell Bundy, she was a, a recurring character on a show I really loved called Heart of Dixie. Uh, She played the role of Shelby in that show and was a recurring love interest for Tim Matheson's character. She is really good at comedy, really good. And to have her in this and not use her, I thought, was such a misstep. And part of the problem, though, is what we're talking about where not just the house is overcrowded, but you as a writer have the challenge of trying to find something for everybody to do in this, and it's just too much in one episode.
1: Yeah, they really tried to juggle too much. And so let's talk about, I'm saving the best for last, but let, let's talk about Bob Saget for a second. Because I, what I found amusing about his subplot was, I identified with the midlife, ca- the midlife crisis thing. I, I I knew exactly where, the, when he walked in, he was like, what up, home slice? He's doing that awkward white boy thing. Which I found amusing, because all I could think about was his stand-up when, once Full House ended. Like, he, like, Bob Saget apparently had this persona prior to Full House. And then he was known as Danny, uh, you know, Danny, oh, God, uh, what the hell was their last name? Chip. (laughs) What's his name, his character's name? Danny Tanner. Thank you, Danny. So then he was Danny Tanner. He was, like, America's dad there for a while. And then, you know, and then alongside of that, he was the host of America's Home Videos, America's Funniest Home Videos. So, Bob Saget really had to clean himself up and present this goody-goody image to all of America for a long time. And so, when it was all over, and he could go back to not having to put out an image, do you remember that stand-up that he did on HBO that shocked the shit out of everybody? Where they were like, oh, my God.
2: Oh, dude, man. Has a
1: dirty mouth.
2: Yeah, that came out in 97. And... uh I, you know, obviously I had grown up watching Full House, and I heard he did. You know, I, I think it's called That Ain't Right, if I'm not mistaken, right. that special. And yeah. I wanted to watch it because I'm like, oh, you know, it's it's Danny Tanner. Well, my dad had made this mistake once before by letting me watch a Pee Wee Herman special on HBO that <laughs> was not at all like Pee Wee's Playhouse. Nope. So he, for once, acted like a responsible parent and kind of pre-screened it and said. Absolutely not, and this is a guy who had let me watch Dice Clay before, so that kind of tells you where that stand-up was at.
1: I was going to say, he makes Dice Clay seem like Bill Cosby, minus the raping. So, anywho. um, (laughs) So, yeah, it was funny to see him, as much as he could for a show like this, dig into that persona. Um, So, I was amused by it, but... It was something that could have cut to give the Joey thing a little bit more time, and and you know, and make it a little less hackneyed and rushed. Because the other big thing in this episode, aside from DJ's kind of meltdown because Thanksgiving is gone awry, which believe me, as the schedule, I can sympathize with TJ. I understand where she's coming from. I I uh, got your back on this one, sister. But uh, the the. <laughs> The subplot with Joey and Rebecca where, you know, she has baby fever and clearly she's too old to have a, to to give birth to a child. But, you know, but you're never too old to adopt kind of a thing. And then you have Joey who's like, we've done our bit for God and country. I helped raise, sorry, Jesse. I have done the bit. I've raised, I helped raise the girls. We've raised our two children. Enough's enough. I just want to live my life which as a man, you know, who has two children of his own, I sympathize with that point of view. I'm nowhere near that point. But, you know, when my kids turn, you know, 18, 19, 20, and they are off doing their own thing and out of the house, I can't imagine a world where I would want to go back and do it all over again with anyone's <laughs> children, <laughs> you know, my own biological or an adopted child. But there are some people that do, uh, my um my my wife's cousins raised uh you know two children who are either adults or approaching adulthood, and they just uh, they just fostered a child who I think they're 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 going to try to adopt, and it's like all right you know whatever makes you happy but I that is a believable argument and discussion with a lot of uh with a lot of emotion tied to it, and I can see both sides in there was a lot of grist for the mill there and I really did like how it was handled. It's just, you know, it was one of those where I could totally see where Chessie was coming from,
0: you know, and I was kind of
1: rooting for him. I was like, you know, I, I, I get it, man. I totally see it, but not the direction that they went in. So, but overall I, I found that, you know, at the very least it was one of those non-funny entertaining uh, moments of that kind of a sitcom.
2: Yeah, and you're dealing with probably in terms of actual acting ability, the two strongest links on the show in uh, Stamos and, uh, uh, forgive me, Lori Loughlin. Loughlin. Yeah, they're probably your two best actual actors on that show. So if you're going to do that with somebody, it makes the most sense to do with them. They're also, at least definitely in the case of Stamos, really the fan favorite character. So people want to see them in a situation they can invest in rather than a one-off type of appearance.
1: Agreed. Uh, anything else about this before we move on?
2: No, I, I, I think it was kind of just a really big mess as much for DJ <laughs> as it was for the viewer. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Excuse me. Episode seven. We go from huge and out of control to a very small episode here with Girl Talk. But back to Stephanie and her music. Um, she writes the song, uh, and you know, there's an idea of, hey, I, you need a band to back you up uh, singing it. They decide they're going to, <laughs> to uh, reunite Girl Talk, and DJ will play the drums. They bring in a character, I guess, from the from the original
2: series, uh,
1: Gia, who was a bad influence on Stephanie.
2: Um, yes, and and played by her actual original series uh, actress Marla Sokoloff.
1: Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> they really did a good job of, of bringing back original cast members um, from the first season, which I find which I find very amusing. In any case, um, they you know they, they they do a couple of renditions of uh, the sign from Ace of Base and the whole thing the whole the whole gimmick with this with the thing is other than dj is miraculously able to play drums because he was good at rock band which i which as a gimmick as a modern gimmick uh played for laughs in various types of situations i always find very funny you know i'm able i'm able to play a real life instrument because i was good at this video game okay terrific so. <laughs> Uh, but you know the major conflict is that even though they have become moms and adults and they have progressed in life, there's still this underlying conflict of you're a bad influence on my sister. Well, you're a goody-goody, and things don't work out. And it, and it all bubbles up once again uh, in you know in this band. So this band is <laughs> this band lasts about an hour basically, which again I found amusing. Um,
2: any thoughts on Girl Talks? Um, Good episode because it was fun for people who watched the original show to see Marla Sokolov actually show up as Gia, uh, still technically a bad influence on Stephanie. Um, and it gave enough to the older viewer where the viewer invested in the children had a pretty decent storyline underneath it um, that tied in. You talk about how it's a modern gag to, you know, do the rock band gimmick where, I can play drums on rock band. I can play, you know, this gimmicky thing in real life where a kid uses social media to humiliate another kid, um, which I thought was pretty relevant based on everything we see in the news today.
1: Yeah, I have, um, I've talked about this any number of times and I don't want to get into it again tonight, but I have said on a number of occasions, the scariest thing in the world for me right now is when my daughter, especially, but you know, even my son you know, are going to go to school, and God forbid they are bullied, it won't just end at school, you know, where they can go home and at least be free for it for a few hours. Now with the, with the Internet, a kid can just as easily bully you all day and all night, uh, create a blog about you, a podcast, share pictures of you. I mean, social media being what it is they can do exactly what they did in this episode. Create something humiliating, share it with millions, and you never get a break from it. Um, It's a nightmare, and there's nothing really you can do about it. Uh, I I hope to God my kids don't have to go through that, but, you know, even, I'll I'll say this one thing. When my daughter uh, decided that because of my influence, she wanted to do a Toy video to be put up do put up on YouTube where um, you know she watches these unboxing videos and she watches these videos of kids playing with toys so she wanted to do one of her own and I have the raw footage still saved on my computer I haven't cut it up yet but <laughs> I, uh, I I was you know I was telling my wife what I intended to do I was gonna make I was gonna cut it up and and put it on YouTube and actually make her own YouTube account connected to my email and she was like and initially she disagreed with that idea and my wife goes could we spare your, your, your almost six year old daughter this was in December can we spare your almost six year old daughter the humiliation of YouTube comments <laughs> I didn't even think about that yeah I'll, I'll disable the comments it'll be fine but I mean you know you, you, can, you can absolutely envision someone looking at a you know, six year old telling you about her dolls and horrible comments. Saying, what a stupid kid. Yeah, yeah, you're ugly, you're stupid, you're fat, your toys are dumb, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? And And it's like, wow, that's the kind of world we live in where I have to think about that and something as innocent as my daughter wanting to talk about her dolls on a video. So, yes, a very relevant and biting and very emotional subplot in this episode with Ramona and Popco. All right. Episode eight, as we start winding down here, this is a tangled web. <laughs> yes, this is the speaking of YouTube. Here's where we get a rendition of The Boy Next Door, which is, <coughs>
0: this is a, you know,
1: as far as pop songs go, it's a cute song. What, what, real quick, you may voice a rest here. What did you think of the boy next door?
2: Relatively harmless, nice bubblegum pop, which is refreshing for a lack of auto tune, if nothing else. Um, uh, it, nothing that is going to offend me to listen to. Nothing that is obviously bad. It's not gonna. It's not gonna be the Let It Bleed album from the Stones in terms of impact or relevance. But it's a nice <laughs> little friendly pop song. That's just fine. Yeah.
1: Uh, and it's our outro music tonight, as a matter of fact. But, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Whether you like, or like pop or don't like pop, it was a, it's a catchy song. I still have it in my head, you know. as so, I'm driving around town listening to the new creator or my workout mix was full of heavy metal. I'll still have in the back of my mind, the boy next door. Hey, hey, he's the boy next door. <laughs> and so we, uh, we see more of Jimmy's creator side coming out. We're going to create some music video. And it's like over-the-top, um, over-the-top lovey-dovey, over-the-top um, maudlin. Well, not maudlin, but just, as Kimmy puts it, they are annoying. So they change the video to where it's about the baby and the dog. And, of course, it gets a zillion hits, and everyone loves it, which leads to other stuff going, which leads to other stuff in the next couple of episodes related to her music career. Um, but I thought that was... That was uh, amusing. This is also the the end of the subplot for Max's garden, which uh, becomes a uh, a competition between him and the, uh, and the and the best friend Taylor. Uh, you know, Taylor builds like like a solar powered um, ATV, um, and so DJ, who becomes very competitive, uh, turns Max's garden into uh, a lot of sizzle. <laughs> an over the top show uh, which I actually thought was brilliant I have to say in terms of like self referential mocking and I don't even know if they really did that the writers but they absolutely drew a parallel with Max's garden show to the idea that you can trick a lot of people into going along with something by making it super entertaining, and light, you know, high on entertainment value, light on knowledge, light on fact. And I'm almost wondering, now that I say that out loud, if the writers were thinking about the election and Donald Trump and how he was able to uh, garner support among a lot of disaffected middle working class people by being high on sizzle, and low on actual facts. Uh, thankfully, they didn't direct. If that was if that's what was guiding the writing of those this plot, thankfully they didn't reference it directly.
2: Yeah, it was it was a pretty clear painting of what they were trying to do, as well as the fact that spoiler alert neither Taylor or Max win and a third party wins and makes everyone happy (laughs) Um, which we'll we'll, we'll leave that alone too Um, but that was at least it it wrapped things up in a way where it I think it gave the closure it needed to that particular storyline it gave a lot of space for Elias Harger to do things that weren't his normal season one I'm going to yell and get super excited route um, type of acting it allowed a different character dimension to DJ where she becomes super competitive mama bear and doesn't want her kid falling behind anybody. And even Fernando, you see start to build a bond here with Max and kind of become more a part of the actual Fuller house family, as opposed to just an extension of Kimmy's family.
1: Yeah. Um, I really liked Elias harder in this episode I, uh, you're absolutely right. He, first of all, he hasn't spent most of the season shouting into the camera, you know, or doing that precocious I'm cute bit. Uh, but this one, they gave him, you know, they they needed him to kind of step out and be a bombastic performer and he, and it it played well this time around. Uh, I like, I like the father character again, restraint was shown. They didn't make him too over the top either. Thank God. Uh, um, There's really nothing to talk about with the, with the third subplot, which is uh, watching Lola's spider, which then causes havoc. <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll move on to episode nine here, glazed and confused. So this is the one with the <laughs> this is the one with the poison donuts that Joey. Broken. Yes, that makes everybody now sick. So we have that. <laughs> so we have that subplot, which is basically. It's one of those it, it was one of those gags that makes Matt bond with the family. You know, and kind of shows oh. DJ that. Go
2: ahead. One forgot one note I had written down for a tangled web. The director yes. of a tangled web is Joanna Kearns. If the name sounds familiar, we made an allusion to the series Growing Pains earlier. Joanna Kearns played Alan Dick's wife. Maggie Seaver, on that particular show, also parent to Kirk Cameron's character, the brother of Candace Cameron.
1: Yes, I actually knew that name. Didn't connect until you said it, but I remember Joanna Kearns was an actress and now apparently a director. All right. The major plot thread of Glazed and Confused was uh, Stephanie goes to Los Angeles to be on her dad's show to perform The Boy Next Door with her new band, uh which is a bunch of nobodies. <laughs> and uh while they're there, um you know, Jesse's around because they're being followed by a adoption specialist who's doing a you know a pre adopting uh interview and analysis of them to see if they'd be good adoptive parents. Um, yeah. Fernando Fernando because he wants to see the set to his favorite show, Police Woman. And in and in all the nonsense that happened, they all get uh they all get trapped in a they're, they're, they think they are trapped in the cell that is part of the set for Policewoman and uh, meanwhile and I actually thought this was very funny um, they they decide that Danny can't have the show by himself he needs someone to interact with and so this is where you get to see Andrea Barber probably do her best work all season as his sub-in co-host. And this is... a, a Part of her character is this. Is she's pushy. She uh, She's not afraid to be in the spotlight, obviously. And so she takes the opportunity to be his co-host and just takes over every segment. <laughs> you know? In this situation, it worked and it was funny. A couple episodes from now, when she does it in Ramona's play, I don't think it's as funny. It, it actually is very annoying. But here... Making Danny sort of a straight man who's just you know whose every reaction is to just sigh into the camera. I actually had a, a uh, I, I had a good time with this episode. I thought it, I thought it was amusing, and then the uh, the bit where they finally get out of the cell because Jesse leans on the wall and it just comes apart and he walks out and they're like oh hey how'd that happen and they all leave Stephanie's stranded on top of the cell. I thought that was cute too.
2: Yeah, I, I like this episode. It, this is kind of the opposite of the Thanksgiving episode in that you had so much going on with so many characters that nothing really was all that great other than a little bit of Bob Saget being Bob Saget. Uh, but in this one, you still had a lot going on, multiple, you know, more, many more subplots than usual, a lot more characters to juggle than usual, but they made it work. They found niches for everybody to get into, and I enjoyed it uh, again. No surprise, particularly Andrea Barber or Barber, excuse me, turning up the goofy to eleven in a fun way when having to interact as Danny's co-host on the show, um, and mm-hmm. even, even even being stuck in the the fake jail cell from police woman. Again, it's a point where Fernando can really to start to annoy me, but I think pairing him with Stamos in that end made him tone it down enough and John could kind of take control of the scenes, almost like a wrestling match where, you know, not to derail us, but you have a guy who has athletic ability but doesn't know how to tell a story, put in with a veteran who knows when to do certain things at what time and when to cut off things when they get too out of hand. And that's kind of what John Stamos played in that scene. And I I don't think that's necessarily transparent to a a viewer who's not a wrestling fan.
1: Yeah, I thought... Samos and uh, de Pace actually were a nice balance for each other. Um, no one outshined anybody. Everyone brought balance to the episode. And you're right, all the balls were appropriately uh, juggled you know, without, without dropping any of them. And I thought it was a bit, you know, I would say this. Season two has a balance issue where some of the episodes are very unbalanced and lose focus and there's just too much going on while other episodes are very perfectly balanced. And overall, it creates a very mixed uh, mixed presentation for the entire season. Then uh, this was one of the better episodes. This next one, however, <laughs> episode 10. <laughs> uh, New Kids in the House. Where the whole premise of this episode is DJ's birthday, where, uh, you know, he, they're trying to get it at this New Kids on the Block concert. Turns out they bought uh, fake tickets for it. So, they're trying to get the new kids on the block to the house to go sing her happy birthday. Meanwhile, she's doped up from having to have dental surgery. And then there's a subplot about, uh, you know, birthday gifts. And of course, Fernando gives her a birthday gift of a painting of himself, which very in line with that character. And I thought that was actually pretty funny. Uh, just, I don't know. I know this is the kind of thing that a lot of sitcoms do to bring guests on. They create these ridiculously amazing situations, but. Let let let's face it. If you try to kidnap a band, you will go to prison. It <laughs> it doesn't end well, and yeah, they were good sports about it. And yes, it's just, it's a it's just a fun sitcom. Don't take it so seriously. But I I struggled with this. I have to be honest.
2: It took the zany factor out of the realm of fun and into well, this is just goofy for the sake of goofy. Yeah. I, you know, and you brought up the point. Like, yes, a lot of this audience is going to be the audience that loves new kids on the block. Um, guilty.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, I said it. But at I the mean, same time, it's it's waiting for my cover girl.
0: <laughs>
2: Just have to take it step by step. All right, that's <laughs> enough of that. Um, we're <laughs> but but this was you know the premise was they wanted to get so badly get the new kids on the block to first to the concert, then to try to get a personalized happy birthday tour, almost mirroring again, what they did in the first show early on in an episode with the beach boys. Um, And in this one, it just went too far and too broad to really revolve the show around the new kids on the block. And they probably could have played up the DJ being completely out of it stuff more. Um, I feel like Candace Cameron is more than capable of playing you know, funny kind of doped up patient role. Um, the, the birthday gift premise was cute. It wasn't something that was necessary or crazy or anything like that. And it was a nice, again, a nice little throwback to the first season when Steve wound up getting her a pillow person, which I think most girls from, you know, the 1980s and early nineties had in their bedrooms, at least in my experience, um, no further commentary needed there. um, <laughs> But this was an episode that really—it's almost like, well, we've done a lot of serious good. Now let's take a time out and just let things ride. And this kind of felt like that, where it was really a one-gag type of show, where it was everything was centered on what's going to happen with new kids on the block. And so, in that vein, you can kind of take it or leave it.
1: Episode eleven: DJ and Kimmy's high school reunion. I really hated this episode. <laughs> I just, I. <clears throat> I understand what the point of it was. This was sort of the last hurrah for uh, DJ and Steve. Um, this is a setup to the season finale, and you know, and how D- uh, Steve is going to propose to CJ and all that. Uh, th- this was the closing of the book on that relationship and all, which I got. But so much of it was beating up on Kimmy. I, I just. It just bothered me. You know, I I, do, I didn't like the approach to it. Um, again, I, I thought the stuff with DJ and Steve was fine, but the stuff with Kimmy took me out of the episode. I just I thought it was too much, and and I and I don't like that kind of writing where you know let's have adults act indecent to one another and treat another adult like shit. Yeah, you and know, you know, of course everything this you know this is a professional party planner who can't get through this entire party without making a series of mistakes, including, you know, airing something about a, you know, a UTI, you know, through the speeches (laughs) and whatnot. It was just, like, come on. You know, you had a great character here, and you've now made her seem like the most incompetent woman on earth, you know. And then, of course, the stuff with Ramon, I was like, eh, this this is one I had to fast forward through.
2: Yeah, I had a tough time with this one. Um the name obviously a reference to Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, which is a movie I absolutely love. Um don't know if you've ever seen it or how you feel about it. This was like the anti Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion where it was you know, in that in that series it was developed in that movie I should say it was developed why those characters were coming back as, you know, kind of punching bags for some of the other characters and there was happy resolution and things like that. This was just kind of, uh, I don't, really, there wasn't anything in here of gravity or weight. And in terms of the main plot, at least where, you know, you kind of had Steve getting to be a good guy at the end of it. And then play the game a little bit where he tells DJ, he's going to propose to CJ and he kind of wants her help with it. Um Where she kind of has that moment of maybe, you know, should I pick Steve? What am I doing? You know, do I really like Matt as much as I think I do? To me, the better stuff was Jackson faking the report card because, you know, we talked a lot about the acting that Elias Harder got to do in this, a lot about what Ramona got to do, Sonny Nicole Brangus in this. We talked about one episode where Jackson really had something to do. Um, so this episode was was a point where he felt like he needed a straight A report card in order to stand out in his family. And that's not necessarily a bad motivation because you've got so much going on with so many characters and he's really had the least other than the baby Tommy. So I think it was good from a writing standpoint if you're logically following the narrative of the show. And I think it's, again, we talked about how he's a guy who's struggling to find himself. Not a bad thing to explore in one term that that might be another way for him to go.
1: No, I actually thought this paid off the football storyline very nicely. You know, this idea of, I, I, As you said, I, I, I don't have a niche. I don't feel like I have an identity outside of I'm your brother and your son and your nephew. Um, and it gets frustrating that there's nothing that makes me special. So, you know, he has to artificially create something, and he really has sort of a breakdown with Stephanie about it. Um, you know, I, I thought it was great. I, I actually thought that Kido Plays Jackson uh, did, a, did a good job of selling the angst that he has about being ordinary in his extraordinary family—it was the only part of the episode I actually liked. <laughs> you know, the rest of it was shit. Um, yeah. And to answer your question, I very much enjoyed Romy and Michelle. high school reunion. I thought it was great. I still remember the—the uh, the, I can't remember the actress's name, but her telling uh, telling Janine Garofalo that she invented, uh, she invented uh, sticky and post-it notes. Said, yeah. No. <laughs> No, notes, right. She's like, no, I know that guy. You did nothing. That's <laughs> great. All right. Speaking of episodes, I couldn't stand
0: episode twelve,
1: Nutcrackers. Uh, we have a thing where Lola is upset that Ramona can't go to his, Ramona can't go to her party, so she goes to the party, thinking they will give me enough time to get to this, the play before my before the second act where I show up. Uh, of course, they get lost. You know, it, it, it's just common Stuff always happens. They get lost. They don't make it in time. So somebody has to fill in for Ramona. And everything that made Kimmy fun in Glaze and Confused is everything that makes this episode almost unbearable to watch. Because instead of, if they had just kept it to, I'm trying to protect my daughter's spot, but, you know, and, and save this performance for my daughter, if they had kept it to that, and the jokes were she doesn't know what she's doing. So she's just sort of, you know, I mean, I, I thought up to the point where, where Ramona showed up, I actually was amused by it. You know, she has everybody doing the Gimler gallop, you know, and the explanation is, well, everyone gallops, you know. And, and I, I, also, I thought that was rather amusing. But once Ramona showed up and she didn't get off the stage and she then again made it about her instead, I was like, when does this ever stop with this character? When, when is it never about Kimmy? Um, and it's just the degree of selfishness in her character that they write to the, to, to the point where it harms the daughter isn't very amusing for me to watch.
2: No, it's, and and, I I mean, obviously you're going to relate to it on a level where you're a parent and you can't imagine doing that type of thing to your child. Um, I don't necessarily think you have to be a parent to, to even consider that type of, uh, reaction, but, um, you know, here's the problem with how good Andrea Barber is. They see how well she can do certain things to me and they decide, well, we need to expand on it and do more of that. No, you don't. Because at that point you turn what makes the character fun and special, as you pointed out in glazed and confused into something stepping way over the line of good taste and good writing just for visual gags, And it doesn't work.
1: I was say, they turned her into what? The, they turned her into the actress of, um, the, the one that everyone hated from Ghostbusters What the hell is her name? Uh,
2: um, Melissa McCarthy
1: Yeah, they, they turned her, they, they're turning her into Melissa McCarthy Where Melissa McCarthy I mean, say what you will But she's a talented actress And she, and she is actually very funny um, She's you know, Rosie O'Donnell back in the day Before she became horrible Was actually very funny but it was with, it's like Hollywood just has this thing where they find these actresses that are very good about, with physical comedy and then they just stop giving them anything to work with other than falling down. Just fall down and be stupid. And they, they've done it to Michelle McCarthy. And it isn't just about being fat because you know, Andrea Barber is not a fat, fat actress. But that, it tends to happen more often than not with fat actresses. But they've done this with quite a few where it's like, they're funny in all kinds of ways. They just happen to also be able to do physical comedy, and then they get pigeonholed into just doing physical comedy. And I feel like that's what they're doing with Andrea Barber, where it's like we know that you're this bombastic personality and you can do all this physical stuff. So we'll only have you do that, and we'll and we keep upping the ante, as you said, because we figure you know the bigger the nonsense, the more the less. And it's like nope, this only ha- this could only go. <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah. <clears throat> It's like a meter. As the needle goes into the red, it's no longer funny. And this went into the red. This went so far into the red, it went off the charts
0: for me.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and it's a waste of what Andrea Barber can do. And and she's again, as you said, she's more than just physical comedy. She has great delivery, great timing, plays her part extremely well. But they just get lazy and decide we're going to go the slapstick route. This is a visual medium and everything needs to be visual at this point. So we're going to turn her into, you know, female John Ritter and falling all over the place and bumping around and looking silly.
1: Thankfully, this episode is actually saved by two elements of it. that I thought were sweet. You have, uh, they finally, and I'm going to reference something from, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with red letter media, but these are, this is the Mr. Plinkett re, uh, Star Wars reviews. This is Half in the Bag. Uh, they do a number of other things, but that's what they're primarily known for. And if you know nothing else about the Red Letter Media guys, the, the, the thing that made them famous was the Mr. Plinkett review, uh, the 12-part review of The Phantom Menace, which if you haven't seen it, you really should. It's excellent. But uh, on their show Half in the Bag, they, they have something called The Not Gaze. Uh, so, for example, uh, Chris Pine's uh, Captain Kirk um, the 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 writers made sure he had a case of the not-gays by showing scenes where he's having sex, sex with aliens. But, you know, Spock has a case of the not-gays because they have to show him kissing O'Hara. I mean, he has to be in a relationship just so everyone knows he's not gay. So when I say, like, and it's weird they did it with a little kid, but it was like, they the way, the, the way Elias Harder had portrayed Max Played him a little feminine. We we talked about that in the first season. Not only was he screaming into the camera half the time, but they also he also played him very feminine for some odd reason. And even though they toned him down in this season, he's still playing the character a bit dewyish. You know, he's writing that line where you're like, "Gay, get a little bigger." Which whatever. I, I I mean, it's weird that you would do that with a kid, but it's also very noticeable. And then it was like as if they had a tacit recognition that oh no we've made this child a little a little fagula. They're like quick he has to have a case of not gays. so they gave him a girlfriend. And <laughs> and it was like they somehow managed to make it forced and sweet at the same time. I was actually amused by their chemistry, you know, you know as much chemistry as you can have with little kids. Uh, but <laughs> it was also like. You could definitely see, like, someone... Like, they got notes from a producer or something. They were like, you've made the kid too gay. Give him a girlfriend. Oh, God, fuck. Okay, here. We'll, 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 say, we'll say fucking Steve and CJ have a daughter already. You know, a stepdaughter in Steve's case. And that'll be Max's girlfriend. You know, are you happy now? Whatever. <laughs> but uh, real quick, uh, Max and Rose...
2: Um, Just a a fun little half-a-love story that these sitcoms tend to throw in every now and then. It's a cutesy little thing. They tried it on Girl Meets World uh, with the the two younger children in that show, the son Augie and a a girl who lives in the building. Didn't have any real chemistry there. It was just kind of forced. This, I thought, was a little more fun, a little more lighthearted, and I thought it played well with the dynamic of the older kids to boot.
1: Um, And then, of course, this is the episode where um, Jimmy Gibbler tells Stephanie that he loves her, and after a time, she tells him she loves him back, and then they are a couple, and it's all wonderful. And finally, as we come to the end of this podcast, so too we come to the end of this season. With Happy New Year, baby! We are the gang is all here once again uh, for uh, for New Year's. This whole episode, uh, Stephanie is waiting for Max to come back from India. Uh, everyone's in town. They're going to get the new baby. Um, um, Jesse and Rebecca are going to get their adoptive baby on new year's. Uh, Stephanie tells Jimmy that she's infertile, which, you know, that's fine. Uh, you know, he loves her anyway. And they, they're going to do whatever, you know, he just wants to be with her. That's fine. I struggled with this episode for one reason and that was when Steve goes to DJ, this is, I actually fast-voted through this because it was too stupid for me. Um, (laughs) Steve is is asking DJ with his, you know, help propose to CJ. And and, and, and I get the fact that it paid off an entire season of jokes at the CJ character's expense that, you know, Steve really still has his heart set on DJ. Um, And yes, I understand that by having her walk in on them running through his proposal and thinking he's proposing to her, uh, pays off that entire season's worth of gags. But still it was too company for me. It was too, too forced situational. And I, and they resolved it quickly enough and funny enough. And I, and I did enjoy Matt walking in on DJ proposing to CJ. <laughs> uh, because he couldn't do it for whatever the reasons were, but yeah, that whole bit in the kitchen when she walked in and up to the up to the point where she where clearly they had resolved it and DJ was proposing to her, I was like, this is unbearable. She want to weigh in here? Am I am I am I getting am I too sensitive or were you or were you struggling with that as well?
2: I sat through it, <laughs> and that's about as much praise as I can give it. <laughs>
1: That was rough, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I don't really think you, you were wrong about any of it. Um, Again, getting goofy for the sake of goofy uh, and trying to throw little nods in there here and there to, for sight gags was, I mean, it was kind of almost, like you said, it. Really, we've used the word a couple times, hackney, and I don't want to overuse it because it eludes its meaning, but that's really the best way to describe how they threw that together.
1: Yeah. Um. They made a lot of hash out of the whole Godfather conversation between Jesse, Joey, and Danny. And then went nowhere with it. <laughs> Did you notice that? Like, you know, I've got something to say to you. I don't like your song. Huh? <laughs> like, That's it? That's where? Like, I really thought they were going to address some sort of tension between the, the three men. And then it just went nowhere. It, it, was, it just seemed to be a gag.
2: Yeah, I don't I don't know if that was whose decision that was. Uh first of all, everybody likes this song forever, so that was a terrible joke in and of itself. Um, <laughs> second of all, you know, there's a chance, okay, you know, we had some involvement from the main characters of the original series, then we cooled off. Now we brought them back, we might give them something to do here. No. It's just gonna be they're here for window dressing. We gave them a little something just to bring people to see them, and there's nothing actually of note here.
1: Yeah, um, but we finally have the big season reveal that DJ was, wanted to be with Steve at the onset of season two, but uh, she missed her window of opportunity, and she, she, that even though she wanted to be with Steve, she realizes she's happy with Matt, and that's how uh, the season ends as we prepare for season three. One thing I, I have to say before we close out, is the uh, the mugging to the camera from John Stamos as they once again tacitly tacitly acknowledge that the Olsen twins have have opted to not be a part of the show, not even in a brief appearance. And John Stamos very funnily uh, looks at the camera and says, "Come on, it'll be fun." <laughs> I had a big laugh at that.
0: Yeah, all that that was
1: Thanksgiving episode. I thought that was very amusing.
2: Yeah, that was good. And uh, I know that in real life, Stamos has had the closest relationship with the Olsons uh, and stayed in touch with them for a very long time regularly and would hang out with them at Disney World, which is like all of their favorite places. Um, So if they're doing that to try to reach out to them, it's kind of like the last gasp effort, I guess, um, to say, John, maybe you could be the one to convince them. Uh, but at this point, I don't think any of us are holding our breath to see the Olsen twins reprise the role of Michelle. Uh, and we're probably looking at a recasting this year if there's nothing that can be worked out.
1: You know, if they can find a lookalike for Aston Kusher, I'm sure there's somebody out there that looks like one of the Olsen twins.
0: And why not? Well, they, mean... asked, they, they asked
2: they uh, asked Elizabeth Olsen, but I guess she's too busy uh, being the Scarlet Witch and doing other things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, listen. Maybe uh, after look, she, they're shooting the Avengers now. I'm sure you know they if she uh, if she was interested, then they can get her to do it, and her sisters won't disown her if she does. You know, go go in there and shoot an episode. I mean, how long could it take to film one 22 minute episode in between Avengers projects or whatever the hell else she's working on? So get in there, you know, be Michelle for an episode. And maybe I mean, I'm not asking any of the Olsen twins to make a whole series season commitment, but why not get in there, you know, do it, you know, like do an episode uh, like they do with Joey or Jesse or somebody and then get out again, make the fans happy. I mean, you know, get yourself a paycheck and let's move on with our lives. I, it's one of those where I don't understand where the Olsen's are coming from and at least not doing an episode at this point. I mean, maybe the first season they, you know, they were like, well, Let's see how this plays out. This may suck something awful. And we don't want our names attached to it. But I mean, at this point, is the Olsen brand even that valuable? They're they're so old now that I don't think they're even selling to. Uh, I I don't think they're selling movies to kids anymore. I mean, am I no, wrong?
2: No, they're. About that? they're... Uh, they're not the the one thing I know, and they they may be the allusion to in season one is that uh, one of them I don't I don't know if it's Mary Kate or if it's Ashley, it may, maybe it's both of them. I'm I'm wrong, but um, they're doing a fashion line of some kind, which uh, it goes even further to the point where I don't understand how that would hurt them in the least um, mm-hmm. to make a guest spot. I, I know that uh, I, I want to say it's Mary Kate. Mary Kate's retired from acting. But at the same time, you know, this is this is why you guys are famous in the first place. This is, right. you know, the show that launched you. I understand you did other stuff, but without Full House, are there, you know, the, the uber-successful Mary-Kate and Ashley video series uh, of movies? And, you know, they, they tried two other shows after Full House ended, and guess what? Neither of them lasted beyond, a, you know, a season or two. Uh, so... It's pretty clear what people wanted from the Olsen twins, and that was Michelle Tanner or, you know, safe movie that you could rent for a girl's sleepover or something um, for, right. you know, elementary school age girls. If anything, I don't see how this wouldn't help their brand by getting their name out there more, be uh, getting the people who love them to begin with to see them in the role they love them in to start with. Uh, maybe bring some attention to their fashion line by wearing some of the clothes in. I, I don't know. I don't see what the big deal is. It's not like money is an issue to my knowledge. They weren't really getting any yeah. acting jobs after, you know, 2002 anyway. I, I just, I, I don't get it.
1: No, I mean, and look, they have a very successful fashion line. I mean, I'm, I just looking at their Wikipedia pages. Um, right now I'm on the one just from Mary, Mary Kate Olson. And as of last year, She was nominated uh, by the Council of Fashion Designers of America for Accessories Designer of the Year and Women's Wear Designer of the Year. She actually won in 2015 Women's Designer of the Year. So that's fine. And she uh, looks like she had a television role in uh, 2008 in something called Samantha Who. And uh, she was in an episode of Weeds or rather she was a recurring character in season three on Weeds, and that was 2007. It looked like the last thing that she did, last two things she did, uh, films, in 2011 she was in something called Beastly, and then a documentary... Oh, that was... uh, Yeah, that that
2: Beastly was a really really bad uh, modern-day take on uh, Beauty and the Beast sitting in Manhattan High School uh, (laughs) that was universally panned.
1: Uh, And she was in some sort of documentary... 2013, Scatter My Ashes at Bergdorf's. I have no idea what that's about. But um, as a pair, their last thing they did together was New York Minute in 2004. So, again, I'm not saying, like, they need the the gig. Clearly, as fashion moguls, they're doing just fine. Which, again, I go back to, in what way does any of this hurt your brand? to just show up, shoot an episode, and you know, yeah, come in. You know, I would say even let, talk to most about saying, look, why don't I, uh, why don't I dress everybody in this episode in our in our stuff? You know, this episode brought to you by whatever the hell the name of the fashion company is, and we, you know, and everyone wears something that they have, they've created or if their line is created, and you know, come in, do an episode, and leave again. I it's just I I don't. We are probably talking about this longer than anybody involved in the show has. So let's just move on. By the way, the name of the comic yeah. called Dual Star. Dual Star. That sounds very science fictiony. All right. Um, the show has been renewed for a third season. Uh, expected to be released sometime in 2017. And uh, they've ordered 18 shows. So the first season was 13 episodes. Second season, 13 episodes. We're going to get 18 episodes back next time. I may need to put this on for a whole whole two hours to review instead of 90 minutes.
2: Let's not get ahead of
1: ourselves. (laughs) Okay. All right. Um, Just to sum up, again, overall, look, comedy is supposed to, as I say to Robert Winfrey all the time, comedy is supposed to make you laugh. I only had to fast forward a few times, as I said before, but overall I thought the show was funny. I find the characters to be very personable. Uh, very enjoyable. Certainly a few of them are quite lookers. Uh, they are certainly nice to look at. Um, I'm excited for season three to see wh- where they go and what they come up with. And I'm, I'm very excited because I decided to keep the Matt character on because I really liked him uh, with DJ. And the, uh, the Jimmy-Steffy uh, relationship is also a fun one that I hope they do some more stuff with. So I'll, let, I'll give you the final word here.
2: Uh, Again, I I didn't enjoy it as much as the first season, but that's not to say I didn't enjoy it. I thought there was a lot of good here. I think this season had more missed opportunities than season one, which is probably my main criticism of it. Um, But it did leave the door open for possibilities to have the show get even better as it goes. And I think every show, it's not uncommon to see a sophomore slump here and there. Um, Even in the original series, I felt season one was superior to season two and uh, now that they're expanding it, 18 episodes, the narrative for the season isn't going to be as crushed in where you have to jam everything into place as you did here. I think there's good opportunity then to have a better balance of stories with, you know, a main cast of something like eight characters is tough, and then on top of that, all the recurring characters from the original series and recurring ones that they've created for this one, an 18-episode balance seems a little bit more realistic to handle those things in a better way and not... And it's going to challenge them to have to write a little bit more longer term and not rely on going over the goofy line like they did in this one.
1: Agreed. All right. That's it for TV party tonight. Tonight. Uh, Tomorrow night on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network is the Metal Hammer of Doom. We'll be reviewing Creator, Gods of Violence. And Thursday, I believe... We are uh, going to be doing another Because So-and-So Made Me, or name. I say Because Name Made Me. Uh, Gavin will be coming on to, uh, to review The Master, another Paul Thomas Anderson movie. So that'll be fun. Uh, the next TV party, I believe Jesse is coming back on, and we're going to look at uh, Black Mirror Season 2. Um, the next Metal Hammer of Doom or the next week uh, we'll be reviewing actually my friend's uh, band from high school my friend from high school uh, he has a band called If He Dies um, their album Beneath the Waves is available on Spotify as a favor because I'm a nice guy I, uh, I'm gonna, we're going to go ahead and review that for them on uh, the Metal Hammer of Doom and then our next on trial is Thursday February 9th. Uh, I'll be defending Sean will be prosecuting resident evil, the original resident evil as they wrap up resident evil in the movies. Uh, we'll be putting the original resident evil on trial. Uh, Pat and, uh, let me go ahead and plug this. It's in the archives. Now, uh, Pat and I did an alternative commentary Saturday night for UFC on Fox 23. Um, Shofanko versus Pena. Uh, we did that live. If you want to go, if you haven't heard it yet, and you want to go back and listen to it, uh, it, it we did. I thought we did a fairly good job of capturing uh, capturing all the action there. And most importantly, because I used my phone that night, as I'm using tonight, it was audible. <laughs> there was no sound cutting out. <laughs>
2: Except when that happens, folks.
1: <clears throat> well, you know, <laughs> they can't all be winners. <laughs> other than my, other than my lack of lungs, there was no sound cutting out. Uh, I, you know, the lung thing—that's a whole other issue. All right, I, I'm going to try to get air back in my lungs. So why don't you do your plug, sir?
2: Okay, uh, as Mark pointed out, we uh, we both we recorded a live commentary during the latest UFC on Fox card. Uh, if you like MMA in the least, please listen to it. Let us know. Your feelings on how we did. I like to think we're much better than John Anik and Brian Stan. Note, I said like to think that. I don't think we actually are, at least in the case of Brian Stan maybe. Uh, but, yeah, we had a great time doing it. If you listen to it, we really hope you enjoyed it. And we always appreciate feedback on things you did like and things you didn't like that we can try to improve on. Um, I'd like to throw a plug out to uh, a good friend of mine, Joey Infante, who I've known for about 15 years Joey has just started uh, recording and doing his own podcast uh, network. It's uh, got its own website. It's called deathbypodcast.com, and they specialize in two games. It is the Slice and Dice Dreadcast, which is dedicated to horror movies of all kinds, and the Death by Moonsault podcast, which is, as its name implies, dedicated to wrestling. Uh, Joey has a co-host named Jim on it. They are a great duo. Uh, Joey's been a friend for a number of years, and I really enjoy his work, so check it out. Uh, Other than that, you will not probably hear from me in the near future uh, until we get to rolling when Mark does a When in uh, Rome-themed movie series where tentatively you will hear me and Mark talk about uh, the Bruce Lee classic, The Way of the Dragon or Return of the Dragon, depending on whether you're using the American or Asian title of it. It is the notable film that features the Bruce Lee-Chuck Norris fight.
1: All right. Uh, thank you for listening tonight You uh, downloaded it in the archives Thank you for downloading Go ahead and give the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network Facebook page a like Check out our other shows If you will I want to thank Pat for joining me on this TV party tonight We're going to go out with the boy next door Be well, be safe, and behave
2: hey Hey